Folks, if you would, please turn your Bibles to Jonah, the last message on Jonah, chapter 4. I think it's written in your bulletin, A Heart of Compassion. I used the indefinite article there, I shouldn't have. The heart of compassion. God's heart of compassion. That's what we're imitating. It's not general, it's not generic. It is as God has revealed. He has compassion in the means that he reveals. And we know as Christians today, though this was approaching 3,000 years ago with Jonah, we know today, in the full revelation of Scripture in the New Testament and the life of Christ, that the most compassionate thing that we can do is take the message of the gospel. Number one, everything else is secondary and tertiary. Everything else. Uh, as uh, the late Adrian Rogers said, great preacher, I always remember this one, I've said it before. Uh, if you see a person and you meet their, their temporal physical need and you refrain from telling them about Christ, you have simply made their life a more comfortable place to go to hell from. That's a fact. The message must always come first in compassion. We'll see that uh, is what has occurred in Jonah or in Jonah's day, with Nineveh. And as we wrap up our study of the book of Jonah today, if there is one conclusion that we can all make about God after, after this time we've been studying through this book, it's that He is a God of sovereign compassion. Sovereign compassion. Uh, this is because He set His sights on Nineveh. Nothing could hinder Him from going to Nineveh. And, and this is very very important doctrinally for us to understand. We process everything that we do throughout our lives through the lens of Scripture. Is God in control? Yes. Can man, could we even, could Jonah thwart God's plan? Never. Never. And that, and that will adjust every, every doctrine, every thought that we have has to be, has to, pass through that lens of interpretation or else we get caught up in all kinds of temporal stuff all kinds of secondary and tertiary activities at the expense of what is primary number one the gospel the gospel very important us to understand uh, God was determined to demonstrate compassion towards Nineveh over the last several weeks we've visibly seen what that compassion looks like with Nineveh, compassion initially was demonstrated by sending a messenger with a message. Jonah with a message. It was also demonstrated by God instigating change in the hearts of the people of Nineveh. It's evidenced by their spiritual fruit, turning from their sins, God removing his wrath. Today we're going to see that God's compassion is further demonstrated on a people, on any people, through the imparting of knowledge of him. That is doctrine. Imparting knowledge. We're going to see that, that we as believers, as Christians, born again by the Holy Spirit, we play a very significant role in, in this part, in this portion of God's compassion on others. The Great Commission comes into play. God demonstrates his compassion by transferring knowledge to people through us as his vessels, through his word that he has spoken, through the prophets and the apostles. Knowledge is transferred through us. 
We'll also see compassion is not merely taking a message to someone and then just leaving the rest up to God. It's much more than that. It includes our own, own ongoing personal involvement. Where we see God working, we must be working. We must respond. That's why we call it our Christian responsibility. We need to be ready to respond wherever God takes us as a congregation, as individuals. And in this discussion of God's sovereignty, you hear people talk a lot about man's responsibility. The book of Jonah has established the correct balance. Humans have a responsibility. It is a response. That's why we call it a responsibility. Webster's Dictionary defines response both as something that constitutes a reply or a reaction to an outside force, and that, that very act of responding. That's a response. Our personal responsibility is our obligation to respond to what God has done to us personally through regeneration, through spiritual growth, and also our response in identifying and joining God where he is working locally. That's our responsibility. The book of Jonah has shown that there is so much we don't get to decide, but as God's children, we are obligated to respond. Concerning this, this overarching theme of Jonah, John MacArthur writes, The book of Jonah reveals God's sovereign rule over man and creation. Creation came into being through him and responds to his every command. That statement is true. Notice, again, MacArthur uses the term responds. Creation responds. That which belongs to God responds. God hurled the wind, the sea responded. God commanded a fish both to swallow and then vomit up Jonah. The fish responded. The plant responds. The worm responds. The scorching east wind responds. At the preaching of God's word through Jonah, Nineveh responded. That which belongs to God responds to God. And throughout scripture, I'm only aware, categorically aware, of one part of creation that doesn't respond to God. Any idea what that is? It's the children of the devil. They're spiritually dead. Jesus said to those who opposed him in John 8, 42, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You cannot. You are of your father, the devil. They don't respond. That's the only part of creation I, I see in scripture that doesn't respond. They cannot hear the word of Christ because they have a different father. 1 John 3.10, it tells us that there are only two categories, which John says are obvious, the children of God, the children of the devil. Two categories of people. That which belongs to God responds to God. We've seen that in this book of Jonah. Do you respond to God? Folks, do you respond to the word of God? I ask this because if you do... Your responsibility doesn't end with Christian conversion. 
That's just the beginning of Christianity. It's a rebirth. It's a new beginning. And we are to respond. We must recognize that the children of God have an obligation or a responsibility to progressively, increasingly respond to God's call through the Word of God. We have to respond with our lives and our actions. And with a very kind of peculiar ending to this, this is very unique as I read the passage now, beginning in verse 9 of chapter 4, this book of Jonah concludes with kind of a strange or or unique calling for a response. We're going to pick that apart later. Beginning in verse 9, it says, Then Jonah, uh, God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I have not compassion on Nineveh, says God, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left hand, as well as many animals. Here God is provoking Jonah and asking him to evaluate, what are you focused on? He's, he's asking Jonah to compare that to what he is focused on, what God is focused on. God's been focused on it for four full chapters, the entire book. He's been focused on the word going to Nineveh. And he says to Jonah, should I not have compassion? And like our scripture reading earlier from Luke chapter 12, that, that chapter, Jesus says, don't get caught up with, it, with that which is temporal. Here today, gone tomorrow. He says, sell your possessions, give to the needy. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Be dressed in readiness, though, he said. Keep your lamps lit. Essentially, what Christ is advising us is to keep our hearts set on his priorities. Be ready, be working. Keep the lamps lit. We have to be watching our Father's work. Where are Jonah's eyes focused by comparison? Well, he's focused on the exact opposite of God, or that which is contrary to God. His heart is set on the temporal comforts he experienced. The plant, as you recall from last week, it provided a comfort of shade. It made him feel physically well, for which Jonah, in verse 6, was extremely happy. Extremely happy about the comfort. But God killed it. He killed it. Once again, Jonah becomes very angry. Now he's angry about the plant. But that which made Jonah so happy was temporal. In verse 10, God exposes Jonah's heart problem. It is a double standard. You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and for which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Hmm. Observe how quickly life's comforts vanish. Gone. And and it's so obvious for us here, reading this, to, to see this conflict between Jonah's and God's agendas. Can we see it in our own lives? 
Can we see it in our own lives? Will God open our eyes? Jonah loved comfort, so he had compassion on that which made him comfortable. The plants. God, Christ told us where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And, And this doesn't imply, you know, Jonah felt sorry for the plant for the sake of the plant's sake. That's not what it's talking about here. It means Jonah set his heart on that comfort, and he felt sorry for himself for losing it. That's what the real problem is. He loved the plant because of what the plant did for him. It was a selfish motive. It was selfish not because it made him comfortable, because, but because what made him comfortable became a, a barrier between him and God. It wasn't the comfort that was the problem. It was the barrier between his agenda and God's agenda that was the problem. So God took it away. You know, notice, this is a man, he is a prophet of God. This this is a person who is in a relationship with Yahweh. He would represent a saved Christian today. And he's still not responding to what God is commanding him. He left his first love. He didn't have to work for the plant. The plant, it was just graciously provided by God. He, He gave him what he would make him comfortable. Jonah set his sights on it. Just as Jesus said on Luke 12, in Luke 12, don't worry about what you need. Your father knows what you need. He'll feed you. He'll clothe you. He'll take care of you. And, and, and Jesus isn't implying that we don't get up in the morning, that we don't work, that we don't, don't uh, serve, that we don't earn. Jesus is implying don't get so preoccupied with the temporal. Instead, seek ye first his kingdom, and he will provide all other things, right? Seek his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom. You know, I think if Jonah could have, I think he would have done everything he could to preserve that plant. He would have probably dusted the leaves off the plant. He would have checked the the moisture level in the soil. Probably would have gotten a pH testing kit. Making sure everything was in balance. He, he, he would have picked off the bugs one by one just to keep it safe. He surely would have smashed that worm. He would have taken that worm out. Given enough, enough time and enough added money, he probably would have built a perimeter fence around the plant to make sure that no rabbit could go in and possibly not the stem of the plant and protect everything that he had, everything that made him comfortable. He loved that plant. He loved it. He would have spent all of his time with that plant. Perhaps like a lot of us who have those half-finished projects sitting around the yard that we love. Oh, we can be dreamers. You know, God God is so merciful to Jonah because he took Jonah's plant away after just a day. Jonah, you got a problem. I'm taking it away now. Jonah didn't have to wait, waste weeks or years of his life worrying about those comforts. Just a day. Sprung up overnight, withered overnight. What are we so angry about? 
God has taken some things away from our lives that were interfering with our relationship to him. All of us have it. God takes it away. God's like, what are you so angry about? Have I not given you what you need? Between verses 9 and 11, here God contrasts for Jonah and for us, the reader, the temporal nature of the plant versus the eternal damnation of man. Verse 11, he says, Should I not have compassion on Nineveh? Question to Jonah. And here we find, you know, added clarity as to the root of Jonah's anger that we saw back in verse 1. It was because he knew God had already spared Nineveh. This clarifies that. As if verse 10 of chapter 3 wasn't clear enough. This assures Jonah never planned to sit under the shelter another 37 days. Just to see if God would destroy Nineveh. No, Jonah had taken a seat and sat on the sideline. Sat on the sideline. He knew God had saved Nineveh, so God rebukes him. You loved a plant, should I not have compassion on Nineveh? That's the whole problem with Jonah. God was focused on something other than what he was focused on. The answer is absolutely yes. God should have compassion on Nineveh. God can provide salvation wherever he wants to. Though they, Nineveh, the Assyrians, were enemies of Jonah and Israel... Nineveh experienced God's compassion and grace. His grace came to them. If Jonah then were tried to, to try to imitate God, you know we've been told to imitate Christ? If Jonah then was told or trying to imitate God, what would he need to do? He would need to also show compassion on Nineveh. He would also have to show compassion. The question is, what would demonstrating compassion look like for Jonah? What would it look like? What would it look like for us as a church? I've noted you for, uh, before how archaeologists suggest that this, this district of Nineveh held about 600,000 people. About 600,000 people. Yet we see in verse 11, God says there were more than 120,000 persons who did not know the difference between their right hand and their left. Why does God note those 120,000? That's one. There are numerous suggestions. Uh, citing MacArthur again, uh, he considers it the portion of Nineveh that was either too young or possibly mentally incapable uh, of making discernments uh, right from the left, possibly 20% of the population, 120,000 roughly. Uh, he makes a good argument for an age of accountability through this. Yeah, that may be, that may be. Uh, others believe the 120,000 represents the 20% of those 600,000 who actually came to saving faith. Those who, who God actually regenerated the others were also spared from the immediate destruction. Um, still others think that the 120,000 represents those who are within the eight-mile radius of that wall. The ones in the interior, inner city versus the whole district. Um, we don't know. We really aren't certain. 
There's a, there's, a, there's a few good explanations. But I'm not really sure if it's really all that important. It may not be crucial. What we do know is, God says, they don't know their right hand from their left. That's the problem. They don't know God. They're not discerning things. I believe the point is, if Jonah were to respond with compassion like God, what would he need to do? It implies that, that, that he's going to have to have compassion. Would that be illustrated by Jonah now running out of his shelter and going into the city and immediately giving food and shelter to every person who didn't have any? No. He could never achieve that. That would be beyond his, his ability, beyond what he has. So that doesn't represent compassion here. How has God demonstrated compassion in this narrative, we can ask? Well, that's quite clear. God demonstrated compassion on Nineveh by providing information through a messenger that resulted in repentance and a change of behavior. That's what, that's what compassion was in God's eyes at this, in this narrative. It also turned away God's wrath, this message, this information. So compassion in this context involves information that led to salvation. And Jesus implies in Luke eleven thirty two that Nineveh was saved. Some argue that. Some way, well, maybe they were just moralized. You'll read that from time to time. Jesus implies that it was genuine. Today I'd imagine if we were to try to categorize this in, in what the, the New Covenant and the Church Age uh, would describe, we'd call it evangelism. Taking the message, the initial message to people who did not know. That part is complete. Jonah already did that. But what is equally important to evangelism do we know in, in Scripture? It's part of the Great Commission. Anybody remember? Do new believers usually know very much about God? Not a whole lot. Not usually. New faith is, is actually usually a very vulnerable time for new believers. It's a period when, when a lot fall prey to false doctrine, false teaching. Very easy in that stage for, for Christians to be sucked in by those who sound spiritual. Got, got the Christian talk. They sound a lot like Christians, but their actions don't line up. Uh, new believers are very vulnerable to false doctrine. It's one reason that the prosperity gospel has had such enormous success in our country. Because uh, new believers aren't usually very familiar with the Bible overall. They're very susceptible to what I call one-verse theology. You know what that is? One-verse theology. That's when people just take one verse and they make a whole doctrine out of one verse without looking at the rest of the Bible. Oh, you see that on TV all the time. All the time, they'll put a verse on the screen and they'll say a whole bunch of things about it that contradict the rest of the Bible. The newer the believer, the more susceptible they are. Very dangerous. So what is the vaccine for one-verse theology? Is it for new believers to learn their right hand from their left. Yeah. 
They need to learn truth, as Jerry just said. They, they, they need what we would categorize now in the church age as discipleship. They need discipleship. They need teaching. A lot of people just cast this aside. I got saved. What do I need teaching for? Because you don't know your right hand from your left? And you're leading others astray because you don't know your right hand from your left? To be quite honest, a lot of the time. Are we all, or do we all have to be careful about this? We all do. Discipleship is included in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verse 18, which says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. That's conversion. And baptize them. That is the profession, the, the public profession of the faith. And third part, and teach them all that I have commanded. Right? Discipleship is part of the Great Commission. You don't stop on day one becoming a believer. The Great Commission, or Great Compassion of God, it's sometimes been called, is demonstrated when we recognize and embrace our responsibility. Our responsibility to show people their right hand from their left. That's why our church here, we systematically teach through the scriptures, all scriptures. Second Timothy tells us that all scripture is God-breathed and useful, profitable for teaching, correction, rebuke, re rebuke, training in righteousness. Why? So that we may be adequate. We might be prepared for every good work. And, and encouraging people to make a profession of faith and evangelism is one thing. It's a very good thing. A very necessary thing, but disciple-making is another very essential thing. Very essential thing. You know, dis disciple-making, by comparison, very slow, tedious, hard. Discipleship is fruit that matures really slowly. Many of us like to wait. I don't like to wait. But that fruit, it matures slowly in people's lives. Years, decades. Are all of us still maturing? Are, are any of us, are we all, any of us glorified yet? No. We're all still growing. It takes a long time. Scripture says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Right? Renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. I'm going to be honest here. We've got, we've got quite a few teachers. It can be discouraging to be a teacher. It can be. We've got Ruth who does the, the ladies group, does a wonderful job with that. Uh, we've got Gerald's doing the youth. I teach. We've got Jerry who is um, working on Bible life group and different people teaching in different capacities. This renewing of the mind takes years. It's grueling. To train a person to think differently from what they thought, it's arduous. Because people absorb new information so slowly, so slowly. In the process, a lot defect. A lot defect from the faith. We see that in Scripture. You know, the more distractions that you have in your life, the more of these plants we have growing around, the slower the transformation process is. Because we're so distracted away from God's plan. So distracted. Paul told Corinth, there was a, a city, a church, 
that, that was very distracted. They had so much immorality surrounding them in that city. They had carnal distractions. And he told them, you know, you ought to be eating steak by now. But you're just, you're, all you can do is a bottle. Milk, that's it. You ought to be on steak. You're just going to drink milk. And their transformation, it was slow. These were real believers he was talking to, slow. In 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2, Paul gave Timothy this solemn charge. And he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead. And by his appearing in his kingdom, Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Great patience, great instruction. Anyone who's taught the Bible consistently can tell you it's challenging. Challenging. You can go through the scriptures week after week after week after week. And I know these teachers that we have here, not, not even uh, completely voluntary on their basis. They do it because God calls them to do it. They'll spend hours and hours during the week pouring over material. And we, sometimes we think it's like, why do we even do it? The transformation is so slow. Why do we even do it? Because we know the transformation is slow. It takes a long time. We don't expect results overnight. The consistent teaching of the Scripture will transform people by the renewing of their mind. And discipleship is God's long-term solution to the internal problem that we have called sin. It is a long-term solution. When God says then to Jonah, should I not have compassion? I believe he's actually inviting Jonah himself. Suggesting, you know, should you not have compassion on that which I have compassion? Should you not join in what I'm doing? Go back into the city, Jonah, and join in with what I'm doing. I think that is what he is telling Jonah right here. And Jonah knows discipleship is slow and tedious, but the teaching of biblical principles genuine biblical principles, both to saved people and unsaved people. Do we not as fathers, parents, you guys as fathers, excuse me, but we all as fathers, do you, do you not rely on the teaching of the scriptures to eventually train up your child in the way it'll go? Of course. Of course. The most compassionate thing that we can do for our congregation, our families, and our city is to teach the scriptures. That is the most Number one priority that we can do. It saves people from hardship, folks. And, and here's just one example. I'm going to give an example of how teaching through the scriptures can help people. And we'll see it come to fruition, hopefully in March, God willing. I'm going to preach a topical message because we're going to be done with Jonah. We're not going to start the life of Christ yet. And I'm going to teach a um, topical message on... Working for your wages. Working for your wages. Laboring for your wages. Have we as Americans become a lazy, apathetic culture? Oh, we have. We have very much so. A, a culture that has resulted in a lot of poverty. It's, it's resulted in a lot of emotional distress, to be very honest. If you look at the statistics. And, and, and believer or unbeliever... 
for us because we're all created in the image of God and created, created to create ourselves and to be useful. Believer or unbeliever, one of the most detrimental things that you can do for an able-bodied now, pay attention able-bodied, talked about this before, one of the most detrimental things you can do for an able-bodied person is enable them to avoid their personal responsibility to work. That's exactly what our system in America often does. Often does. And then it tries to suggest to people, we've all heard it, that we deserve it. We're not stupid. Believers are unbelievers. We say, I didn't work. I don't deserve it. it it's detrimental. And I think I'm going to title that message, Six Days You Shall Labor. Because we always go back to the creation account, and what do we refer to? One day you shall rest, right? We always concentrate on the rest. Very seldom do we hear a message or, or exhortation about the six days you're supposed to labor. That's a command, and it's reiterated in the New Testament. That'll be, um, that'll be coming in March. In, in Scripture, any able-bodied person who's able to, even the widow Ruth, remember when we studied through Ruth? Even she as a widow was to go out in with her own hands and glean the fields, right? That's the way God's system works, so we're going to talk about that. There are many of these biblical principles that our culture needs to relearn. We've forgotten them. America used to be an industrious nation of work. We're not anymore. We need to relearn to become healthy again. Um, Christians must fully embrace and relearn the biblical truth that compassion is demonstrated first and foremost through the communication of biblical information. That's what's compassionate. That's what straightens out our lives. Knowing what's right, knowing what's wrong. That's what gets us on track. God assures us he had compassion on Nineveh. Is there any hint, any suggestion that that compassion, uh, the foremost demonstration of compassion there, was taking care of every poor, hungry, and homeless person? No. That's fine if you have the ability to do it. But that's not how God defined compassion on Nineveh. In Mark 1.38, Throngs of people were seeking Jesus. If you go back to Mark chapter 1 and read through that narrative. And throngs were trying to find him. He had healed many, and many more were trying to come to him. They were trying to find him. They were going to the disciples saying, We want to see Jesus again. We've been, we've been continually healed. And his reply to his disciples at that town was, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby, so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. He came to preach a message. He came to preach, preach a message. First and foremost, the compassion of God is demonstrated through the transmission of information about him. People need to know who God is. They need to know what God demands. All other, fo all other forms of compassion are secondary. Um, one other example, Matthew 26, verse 8. This is going to lead up to what we're going to talk about in a moment. 
Jesus' disciples here. There was a woman who came to Jesus. He's getting prepared for the crucifixion. And she came and she began to wash his feet, cleanse his feet, prepare him for burial, however you would like to describe that. And the disciples became very indignant with her. They didn't like that woman pouring expensive perfume on the feet of Christ. Matthew 26, verse 8. But Jesus, aware of this, well, he'd heard them, by the way, they, they said, why this waste? Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money be given to the poor. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you don't always have me. Jesus is suggesting at least three things in that context. First, our primary goal is not to eliminate poverty. Not the primary. Second, there will always be opportunities to help those in need. They're not going away. You ever been to Africa? India? They're not going away. Third and most essential, what we learn from the woman is that we prioritize Christ first. His identity, who he is. Jesus said, truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in her memory. What's the memory? In honor of her, Jesus said. Is it as the indignant disciples or apostles suggested that, that she wasted her money? Is that the lesson? No. The honor is that she, being wise, prioritized Jesus Christ, number one. His identity, the gospel message being preached. She prioritized. We must never leave the gospel truth about Christ out as we demonstrate compassion, regardless where we are. Never. This next statement is going to be worth your price of admission. The campaign in our culture, and it is a campaign, the campaign in our culture is to supposedly demonstrate compassion on individuals without transferring knowledge about Christ. Actually, at the expense of knowledge about Christ. That is false. That is false. And compassion without communicating actually uh, knowledge of Jesus is not compassion, as Adrian Rogers said. It's not. You're actually just making their home a more comfortable place to go to hell from because you failed to give them what is most important. And America is all flipped upside down on their priorities. One example. Don't tell me the Bible doesn't speak to today. Here's an example right from the text. One example is refugees. Any background of origin. Not even go there. Refugees. It has been proposed that compassion involves just broadly opening our borders. 
That, that's been proposed. Anyone who wants to come in can come in. And, and we Christians especially have come under fire. We've come under fire. Have you heard it? Have you seen it? And you're like, is this right? Is it wrong? How should I be responding? The Bible speaks through Jonah. And they say we're, we're under fire as being hypocrites, uncaring, unthoughtful, uncompassionate. And they say, and, and they say you know, why can't you Christians be more like Christ and love your neighbors, right? Why can't you, you Christians? You're not being like Jesus. I've heard it over and over again. Isn't it astonishing? It is to me. Isn't it astonishing that the people who are asking us that are, for the most part, the same persuasion as those who've been making it illegal to pray to Christ in our classrooms? How is it that they now want to quote Jesus Christ when they spent the last 40 years kicking him out of our schools? Now you quote him. What if the church has said, what if we said back in return, you know, we'll work with you on that. There is liberty in this, by the way, if you're doing it right and you're prioritizing the right things. There's liberty in these views. But what if we were to reply, we're going to work with you with that, in that. Um, we accept that immigration is a good thing. Many of us have backgrounds from immigration. You know, my brother-in-law, Fabio, just immigrated legally from Brazil after 14 years. And we accept it's good. We know there's always going to be an influx of people from diverse backgrounds, and that is healthy. The debate we hear today is about how many and where from. I think everyone's pretty much for immigration. How we do it is another thing. But let's say we behave as Christians. Let's finally do that. As Christ and the Bible have told us, we have to do that. And let's say we show up at the airport to welcome some, some immigrants. We take a, a gift basket to them. We take our, our personal contact information. We hand them gospel literature. We ask for opportunities to speak to them about Jesus Christ so we can talk to them about sin and the gospel and do what the Great Commission actually tells us to do. Let's say we do that. How would the same people react who are crying out at us right now? I got a pretty good idea. They become indignant. You know, these people have come over here to get a new start on life. Stop bothering them with your Jesus. That's what we would hear. In fact, I don't think it would take long for there to be a phone call to the ACLU or the Freedom from uh, Religion Foundation and a lawsuit coming our way to stop being a Christian. That's what would happen. That's what would happen. That is the truth. They would sue us to stop having our primary act of compassion. They don't want to hear about Jesus. They don't want Jesus in our schools. They don't want Jesus involved with immigration. They don't want us involved with refugees. They want us to shut up and stop sharing information about Jesus. There is no compassion without transferring, excuse me, transferring that information about Christ. 
you must provide people information. And that information will transform their life by the renewing of their mind wherever they are. Wherever they are. Flush that out. This is an essential part. Remember I told you, talking about the sovereignty of God, when you got your lens on correctly and you're, and you're uh, processing everything through God's control and sovereignty and, and through an illustration such as Jonah. Essential part of understanding the sovereignty of God that we have learned throughout Jonah is that if we faithfully send missionaries with God's message of repentance and salvation... And if God sovereignly chooses to do so, revival will break out. If he chooses to do it, revival will break out wherever they are. And their lives will be changed. The cultures will be changed wherever they are. That's a fact. The Apostle Paul went out to each nation and preached the Gospels. It changed them wherever they are. Sometimes in the Bible... We see foreigners come into the people of God, Old Testament Israel, New Testament church, and then they take the, that message they've learned back to their location that they originated from, and it transforms them. Revival breaks out where they are. Sometimes, like with Ruth, as we said, you'll have a foreigner who will come in, and she'll join the people of God, Old Testament Israel, New Testament the church. But never before Ruth confessed to Naomi, your God will be my God, and your people will be my people. That's the difference between Israel and the church. They were a nation. America is not Israel. We are the church that exists in America and other places. The church can exist anywhere. It does exist all over the place, not just here. Not just here. Jonah illustrates how Christian Americans... Again, there's liberty in this. This is a fact. Jonah illustrates how Christian Americans don't necessarily have to endanger our own society to be compassionate to foreign people by taking the gospel to them where they are. We don't have to. Don't let people get down on you, tell you what a hateful Christian you are. No way. No way. Um, we got to concentrate on taking out the gospel. This is done through communicating information about Jesus. We're going to have next week um, Crystal Rendell. We have her in, how do you pronounce that, Niger? Niger. She's going to be talking about what they're doing over in Niger. We've got people in other locations of the world as well. We have a translator of the Bible translating information in uh, India. She's going to be here um, the end of the summer. We've got a guy coming from Romania, Hungary, middle of the summer. We've got our missionaries going out there. And if God so chooses, he can transform whole countries. It's all up to him. It's all up to him. We're running out of time. But because there continues to be so much in misunderstanding on one topic, I'm going to hit it quick. Because I don't think our path is going to take us to this subject again in the near future, and it's here. Um, I want to look at the closing words of Jonah and reiterate we prioritize people. We prioritize people. And uh, I know some animal activists will lament, you know, ah, pastor, doesn't the book close by saying 
also many animals? Isn't God really concerned about the animals? The answer is no, no, not so much. Christ implies in, verse tw- in Luke 12 that God is creator, remembers and feeds even the sparrow. Here in Jonah, God also remembers the animals. But Jesus' whole point of Luke, the whole point, you read that, is the huge contrast in values between the sparrow and the person. That's the whole point. He's not elevating sparrows. He, Jesus is demonstrating the great contrast between animals and man. Our priority is not to care for sparrows, of which Jesus said five are only worth two cents. The enormous value in that passage is attributed to man. Our priority is man, which Jesus said is much more valuable than sparrows. See, Jesus is emphasizing the contrast there. Um, There's no inherent value assigned to animals in Scripture. Um, Other than many herds of them were swiftly um, sacrificed, many more quickly eaten. Just like Jesus told them to eat in Acts 10. And uh, they don't have eternal souls. Animals are not made in the image of God. The reason we pull our ox out of the ditch and humanely care for our livestock is because we're made in the image of God. It's because we're made in God's image. And Genesis clearly teaches that we were made to rule over the animals and the birds of the air. So we are humane. Except mice. I kill them. I kill them. Um, I know God does care for his creation. I think part of the emphasis at the end of verse 11 is this. It's not demonstrating extra compassion on the animals or becoming vegetarians or anything like that. Um, The animal sacrifices continued on in the temple for some almost 800 years. Personally, I think God's reference to the animals more likely communicates the severity of judgment that God was going to bring on Nineveh. It was going to be a complete wipeout, even the animals. It's the breadth of the destruction he was going to bring. It wasn't to elevate animals. We have to be very cautious about the continual elevation of animals in the church versus the lowering of value of people. Um... In closing, if God wants to demonstrate compassion on a culture, there are going to be a lot of new believers to care for. Are you ready? Are you ready to teach them? Are you ready to involve them? Um, it takes work. He asked Jonah, what will you do? They don't know their right hand from their left. They're going to need accurate information about God so they can learn to know how to live with their fellow man. But you must start with a correct understanding of God. I'm going to ask the men to come forward and we will do communion. We must start with correct understanding of God and uh, if you were to start teaching others about a correct understanding of God, what would be your most vital doctrines? What would be most important? Um... There was a creed written, we don't know its original origin, Uh, it summarized those doctrines 
Some of those doctrines, at least many of them, were most central concerning God. And it was written in a time where most Christians did not have a copy of the Scriptures. If they had a copy of the Scriptures, uh, th- th- most of them were illiterate. They probably couldn't have read it. And at some point, a creed was written as a summary of doctrines that are essential to Christianity. And they were written in a manner that was easily understood, easily remembered uh, by new and growing Christians. And I'm sure many of you know this creed by heart has fallen out of practice. That that is unfortunate uh, because having never heard or seen the Apostles' Creed would be like having never heard the hymn Amazing Grace. Creeds, just like songs and hymns, were written by men as ways to internalize doctrinal truths about God so they didn't go in error. And while Pastor Weiler was uh, taking church history last semester at Dallas Seminary, he asked if I knew the creeds, and I said, oh, of course I do. I'm a good little Lutheran boy. Um, So in leading up to communion today, we thought it would be edifying to include the Apostles' Creed. If you know it, great. You can go ahead and put it up there now. If you don't, you can read along, because this is a great piece of church history and literature. And if you accept these doctrines that we're going to read together, uh, we invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. Go ahead, the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into heaven. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Jerry, would you please pray before distributing the bread?